In the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. A few nights ago, I was at a Christmas party. A version of this party with this group of people has been happening since 2008, and it is always my favorite party of the year. Friends who are amazing singers gather in a dark church and sing medieval carols by candlelight. Then everyone gathers around a piano and sings Christmas carols together, sort of like we're at a piano bar. And then everyone tumbles out of the church and heads a few blocks away to a dive bar where there's a dance party with a DJ and a smoke machine. You have to have the smoke machine at this dive bar or else you'll see things you don't want to see. So, before my wife Caitlin and I had kids, we would routinely get home from this party, always the third Friday in Advent, and we would routinely get home from this party around 5 a.m. And I felt always like I was playing catch up that last week before Christmas from the fun of this party. Well, there's been a pandemic, and everyone who makes this party happen seems to have had kids during the pandemic. So the whole thing uh, a couple nights ago was a bit more subdued than it was in 2008. Caitlin and I had to leave before the dancing even started because no matter what time we get home, our toddler sons, Harry and Gus, wake up at 6.17 a.m., pretty much on the dot. The real emotional difference, however, at this party a couple nights ago, I felt coming from a good friend of mine, the co-host of the party, she is a mother to a five-year-old and a seven-month-old. And because of that, we don't get to see each other that often. So I went across the church to say hi to her, and I gave her a big hug in greeting. And when I pulled away, I realized she had tears in her eyes. I said, what's, what's wrong? And she replied with a teary laugh. What isn't wrong? <laughs> Tell me what things are wrong, I said. So she told me the primary one for her, a close friend had just gotten a really devastating cancer diagnosis. But the grief that she was feeling was compounded, she said, by what surrounds us in the world, the news, all the grief, all the struggle, all the injustices that we could read about every day if we choose to. It's never just one thing, of course, but she said specifically this week, she cannot tear herself away from the images of the babies and children who are being killed, bombed, who are starving in Gaza. On the one hand, for her, a sick friend, a personal close friend, who keeps hearing the worst case scenario from her doctor. And my friend lives with the real concern that she might die. On the other hand, 
the suffering of the world, particularly the suffering of children. When you come together with friends you haven't seen, how can you not cry? Looking in her teary eyes, I could feel it. I was right there with her. I remembered immediately and physically exactly what that feeling of overwhelm is like when the world seems both too precious and too precarious for words. When witnessing the pain of children is too much to bear. Those of you listening right now, have you felt this before? Whatever the personal thing in your life is that wears down the usual defenses, the barrier that we, we wear as we make our way through New York City every day, the, the personal thing that wore that down, whatever terrible, impersonal thing that is happening at the same time in the world becomes very personal to you. And those two meet, and your heart is so heavy. Have you felt that? Can you remember that feeling? I felt it personally most acutely right after I had my own children. Once I had a baby to care for, I had a new perspective on human vulnerability and also a new terror. The thought of any kind of harm befalling not only my child, but anyone I loved or any child. I'll never forget feeding Gus on the couch in the middle of the night watching TV when an infomercial came on about starving children. I couldn't hold it together, crying as I fed my own child. The memory of my experience of that specific moment is why I could feel it viscerally with my friend a few nights ago. I have been there, and I imagine so many of you have as well. I've been pondering both this feeling and also the act of empathy required from you when you meet someone who is in the feeling right then. There is something cathartic about it, making yourself vulnerable with and for another person. This is a spiritual practice, and when you can do it, it brings you closer to God. It changes your perspective. It often changes your patterns of behavior. It feels bad, and it also feels good. It is hard, and it is holy. Getting into the pit with someone else. This party that we go to every year has a ritual shape to it. It is a liturgy of sorts. Its pattern stays the same, but its effect on us shifts with the people in attendance. Everyone comes to take something in, the medieval carols, but everyone also makes something new together when they sing and dance. Pondering 
my experience a couple nights ago, I realized it is church. This party is a kind of church. The shape of it, the actions, it's so much like what we're doing together right now. Coming together to take something in, but also to sing, to speak, to move, to be with people you know and people you don't know. Worshiping together offers us this same opportunity for catharsis every time we do it. Every time you step over the threshold of this place, you are faced with the opportunity to see each other, to be with each other, to be present for each other. It changes us if we can allow ourselves to be vulnerable to it. This ritualized vulnerability is at the core of the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist is a biblical figure who is connected to Jesus and whose whole role in scripture is always to point toward Jesus. John the Baptist and Jesus are connected by blood. Their mothers were cousins. And they are connected by birth. Their mothers were pregnant at the same time. When they visited with one another, John leapt in the womb upon his mother Elizabeth, hearing that Mary was pregnant with Jesus. John the Baptist and Jesus have been connected that long. You can imagine the scene nine months after this visitation between Elizabeth and Mary, as Elizabeth is feeding her infant son, John, she hears that Mary, her cousin, has given birth in a stable. She hears that this little baby, the son of God, is lying among straw in a box made to feed the animals. We can imagine Elizabeth's eyes, this new mother, filling with tears as well. It's easy to think of the Christmas story, which is so familiar to us, as cute. We can forget the reality of giving birth in a barn and the terrifying symbolism of putting your infant child into a feeding trough. Then as an adult, John the Baptist sets his life apart from the rest of society in order to do this one thing, to point to Jesus, to live in a way that made people pay attention to him so that he could point them towards Jesus. We call him John the Baptist, but he probably would not have called himself that. His interest was not so much in the water, but what it took to get you to the water. His interest was in repentance, turning away from the way you used to be to a new life that is pointed toward Jesus. 
This requires its own vulnerability to shift the focus away from yourself and onto someone else. But it is what John the Baptist shows us again and again. When I was a child, I was a participant in a Christmas pageant every year at my church in suburban Philadelphia, a pageant very similar in scope and scale to the spectacular Grace Church Christmas Eve pageant. But our pageant was directed by an eccentric man from the congregation named Morgan Ruth a big, burly guy with a huge beard and a gruff attitude. Despite his exterior, for some reason, the Christmas pageant was his passion. He showed this, however, by running the production with an iron fist. And when the tableau was made and all the little animals and shepherds and kings had arrived to see this baby Jesus, Mr. Ruth would make sure everyone in the cast knew they had one job. Look at the baby. And Mr. Ruth would yell at us if we did not do it. Look at the baby! This is at rehearsal, not during the pageant, but at rehearsal. Look at the baby! He would yell. And it was a terrifying yell. You! He would point at you. Look at the baby! <laughs> Trying to get all these squirmy ki kids in line, he would bellow this again and again. And he would mutter it to himself around rehearsal. Look at the baby, look at the baby, look at the baby, look at the baby. <laughs> He would even come up right next to your ear and whisper it to you. Look at the baby. <laughs> With his appearance and his direction, Mr. Ruth was John the Baptist for me growing up. I think of him every year at this time. Look at the baby. Look at the baby. Turn your life toward Jesus. This is what John the Baptist wants us to do more than anything, to look at Jesus. And what happens when we turn to Jesus, when we look at him, when we leave our past behind, when we repent and go to Jesus? We are faced with the reality of human suffering when we do this. It's why it can be so hard. We are faced with the heaviness of all the awful things that happen around us and to us. And we also know that God is with us in that suffering. The same God who willingly went to the cross who made himself vulnerable to humanity's lowest and worst impulses, and who through doing that made himself available to us. But on the flip side, when we turn to Jesus, we also see the baby, and it is really hard to look at a sleeping baby and not feel some kind of hope. Terror as well, but also deep love. 
During the season of Advent, we turn toward Jesus, and as we wait, the manger is empty. We wait for Mary to be ready to give birth. We wait for Jesus to be ready to come. We wait with hope for the joy that a baby will bring. Now, it might be surprising to hear what I'm about to say after a whole sermon characterized, I would say, by despair. But today in church, we have lit the pink candle on our Advent wreath, you might notice. And Ellen McElduff, our Flower Guild chair and amazing flower designer, has put the pink roses in the greens for us because today is the Sunday in Advent set aside for joy. The pink reminds us of this joy. Rejoice! Again, I say rejoice! Our scripture commands us on this day. I was trying to figure out how to put that together with what I wanted to tell you about despair, and I came across the perfect image for this sermon. It is um, a meme. A, a family, it's a family photo of just the kids, the kind of thing you like go to Sears for, for your Christmas card. And it's three small children who are, you know, squeezed into their fancy holiday clothes for this portrait. And each child holds a letter. One is holding a J, one is holding an O, and one is holding a Y. And the kids hold them up, but each one of them is absolutely losing it, just wailing. You can tell even from the still photo that the decibel level in the studio is high. The three kids are having meltdowns, crying their eyes out, and the joy they hold in their hands, in reality, the joy is nowhere near. The image is a bit like the Advent carols we sing today. Rejoice, they say, but hauntingly and in a minor key. You see, the necessary counterpart to despair is joy. You really can't have one without the other. You only can feel one because you know the intensity of the other. And joy, today's church theme, is the antidote to the despair that so many of us feel, that so many of you probably brought into this room with you, and rightly so. In the season of Advent, it is our hope that the joy will come. The joy will come that transforms our despair. Looking to Jesus, we know, as the psalmist says, Weeping endures the night, but joy comes in the morning. No one understands this psalm quite the same way as a parent. The number of times you leave your child wailing in the crib, to be awakened by delighted shouts of praise for the new day at 6.17 a.m. 
the number of times you as a parent cry about all the awful things you can think of and then laugh a moment later at the cute noise your baby has just made. I bet even the photo of the screaming children with their big letters brings quite a lot of joy to their parents today. Joy comes in the morning. Joy is the antidote to our despair. And repentance, turning to Jesus, looking at the baby, is the way to joy. This will not solve all the problems of the world. It will not erase the very real suffering of others. It will not explain it either. But if we can allow ourselves to get in the pit, get into the pit this morning with Mary, with all parents who hold these things together, the joy and the suffering, the despair and the hope, we will find ourselves changed on behalf of others. And as a start to fixing the world, it's a pretty good place to be. Amen.